Chapter 6 What is Marriage For? by Rich Lusk Getting married is dangerous. When you get married, you do not know what the future holds. You do not know how your new spouse might change. You do not know what sicknesses they might contract, or into what sins they might fall. Marriage is intrinsically risky. It is all the more dangerous in our culture because marriage as an institution is under attack in our day. While we might expect liberals to attack marriage, what is surprising and disappointing is the inability of conservatives, including conservative Christians, to defend marriage as an institution. A recent Newsweek article entitled, Marriage is Hard, The Religious Right Admits It, shows the problem. The article chronicles the recent marital failures of several high-profile conservative evangelicals, like Senator John Ensign, who was known as a family values Republican. Ensign voted to impeach Bill Clinton in 2004 because of his misconduct and was known for strongly supporting a constitutional amendment defending the institution of marriage. Senator Ensign wrote, Marriage is an extremely important institution in this country, and protecting it is, in my mind, worth the extraordinary step of amending our Constitution. And yet apparently his own marriage was not worth guarding against adultery. The same Newsweek article suggested that the failure of so many high-profile right-wing marriages have destroyed conservatives' credibility on the marriage question. What the political right says about marriage has no power because what they do looks so much like everyone else. In other words, their case for marriage is subverted by their hypocrisy in their own marriages. Marriage is under attack, which means marriage must be defended. But in the church, it is vital for us to understand that whatever defense of marriage we offer has to be not only spoken, but also embodied. The issue will not be won on the political battlefield, but in the bedrooms, kitchens, dining rooms, and family rooms of our homes. The best defense of marriage we can offer is, well, our own marriages. But for our marriages to defend marriage properly, they must be strong, healthy, beautiful, and biblically formed. We must guard and defend our own particular marriages if we're going to guard and defend the institution of marriage. If the church is not known as a place where marriage life is practiced with holy joy, and where spouses warmly cherish one another in lifelong fidelity, then nothing we say in defense of marriage will ever get any traction. Our public defense of marriage has to be wedded, to pun intended, the practice of prizing marriage in our own homes. We need to revisit the biblical foundations of marriage. The best place to begin is, of course, in the beginning with God's creation of marriage. We need to understand why God created marriage. What is the purpose of marriage anyway? Let me begin by stating what the purpose of marriage is not. In many ancient and traditional societies, marriage was treated as a business proposition. People got married to further the family estate and to produce heirs who would carry on a family name. Marriage was a kind of business deal aimed at upgrading family status. Things like companionship and romance were not on the radar screen, at least not as they are today. Family honor, social status, 
and the economic well-being and protection of the extended family were paramount. This is why arranged marriages were so common. Mom and Dad could set up an advantageous marriage for the whole clan, because marriage was driven largely by political and economic factors, not romantic factors. Modern societies have taken a very different tack. Today, people marry supposedly for love. But love, biblically defined, is all about sacrifice, and modern people, being staunch individualists, are not very good at sacrifice. So, it would be more honest to say that today people really marry for self-fulfillment, even if it's dressed in the guise of love. What is marriage for in the modern world? It is for me. Why get married? Today, people get married to express themselves, to satisfy their desires, and because it feels good. The problem with this is obvious. If you married for the sake of personal fulfillment, what do you do when someone else comes along who can provide greater fulfillment? Statistics and the sad wreckage of the modern American family life show us people simply hop out of one relationship and into another. And it's fully justified because they're just following their heart, or whatever. But it has become very clear that in the modern world, marriage is treated as a commodity. Premarital relationships are a way of shopping around to find the best deal. And when another potential partner comes along who looks like more of a bargain, we start shopping there instead. Of course, it is also easy to see how this consumerist approach plays into things like homosexual marriage. If marriage is about self-fulfillment, and gays are told they cannot marry, then we are blocking their pathway to fulfilled lives. The logic of our heterosexual unions and the modern habit of serial adultery via divorce and remarriage make homosexual marriages seem completely normal and natural. But what does God have to say? What is marriage for, biblically speaking? God has something very different in mind for marriage. The biblical approach to marriage is not the marriage-as-business-deal arrangement of many pre-modern societies, but neither is it the marriage-as-self-actualization model we find in the modern world. There are three clearly definable divine purposes in marriage. First, according to the scriptures, marriage is for the sake of gospel symbolism. Marriage is fundamentally a metaphor, an image of something beyond itself. In Ephesians 5, Paul says marriage is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 32. It is not as if God created marriage and then afterward said, you know, this would actually make a pretty good picture of the relationship I have with my people. It is the other way around. God always intended to unite himself to his people, to marry his people. And so he created human marriage to reveal and symbolize that plan. As husbands and wives live together in a biblical marriage, they signify and point to Christ and the church, respectively. In Ephesians 5, Christ's marriage to the church is presented as the foundation of human marriage. Our marriages are derivative and secondary. Our marriages are the copy. Christ and the church are the original. The first thing you must understand about marriage is that marriage is not really about marriage. Rather, marriage is about Christ and the church. This symbolism is not added on top of the marriage. 
it is the root and source of the marriage. The greatness of marriage is found in what it symbolizes. The greatest privilege of marriage is getting to act out the gospel drama of Christ and the church on a daily basis, with the world looking on as an inquisitive audience. While this symbolism obviously exalts marriage, this same symbolism also reminds us that marriage is not ultimate, but penultimate. The reality that marriage points to is greater than marriage itself. If you try to make marriage into something more than it is, your final source of fulfillment and meaning, you will crush yourself, your spouse, and your children. Marriage, like any good thing outside of God himself, can be turned into an idol if we want it too much or demand too much from it. Some people actually make marriage into an alternative gospel, a kind of substitute salvation. They think, if only I can marry a person like A, B, or C, then I would be happy. Or, if only my spouse would do X, Y, and Z, then I would be fulfilled. But this is a form of idolatry. The biggest problem with marriage in our circles is not indifference, but idolatry. We need to understand that family life is not everything. We all too easily hurt most those we love most, precisely because we are most likely to make idols of them, expecting them to provide us with a joy and security that no created thing can deliver. Ernest Becker put it well when he wrote, No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. Alexander Schmemann is even more to the point. Quote, A marriage which does not constantly crucify its own selfishness and self-sufficiency, which does not die to itself, that it may point beyond itself, is not a Christian marriage. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery or lack of adjustment or mental cruelty. It is the idolization of the family itself, the refusal to understand marriage as directed toward the kingdom of God. It is not the lack of respect for the family. It is the idolization of the family that breaks the modern family so easily, making divorce its most natural shadow. It is the identification of marriage with happiness and the refusal to accept the cross in it. End quote. Here is one way to test yourself, whether you are gravitating toward this type of idolatry or familiolatry. What do you do when your spouse or children let you down? Do you get extremely angry and impatient? Do you have a hard time forgiving in such situations? If so, you need to be reminded that only the love of Christ for his bride can really fulfill and satisfy you at the core of your being. You do not need your spouse to be your Savior or your God because you already have a God and a Savior in Christ. Your marriage's fundamental purpose is to reveal to the world the Christ-Church relationship, not to make you happy all the time. Accept the cross in your life and live accordingly. The happiest marriages are not those that aim at marital happiness, but that aim at the kingdom of God. Second, God created marriage for the sake of companionship. Marriage is the most intense and complete form of friendship in the whole of creation. We all know the story. After Adam is created, God brings him the animals for naming. But Adam does not find a suitable helper among them. God then puts Adam into a death-like sleep and cuts him in two. When he awakens, he finds that God has made out of his side a bride, a wife 
She is different from him, yet like him. Mysteriously similar to him, but not identical to him. She is his perfect counterpart and the one in whom he finds completeness. God said it was not good for man to be alone in the garden. A bride was the one missing piece in an otherwise complete creation. The king needed his queen. Now Adam had his bride, and all is well. Adam has been reunited with his missing rib. This one-flesh companionship is beautiful when lived out according to God's will and design. And of course, this beautiful companionship ties back into the symbolism of marriage. To be sure, as we have seen, marriage is fundamentally symbolic, and in part what it symbolizes is the companionship of Christ and His Church. But biblical symbols in some way participate in the realities they represent. Thus, marital companionship is not just a matter of symbolism. It is also experience. Christian marriage not only reveals to the world God's covenantal relationship with His people, It is also for our well-being, as husbands and wives participate in the love of Christ by loving one another. Marriage is a joyous spiritual, social, and covenantal oneness with another person, with Christ himself as the glue that holds the two together in a one-flesh bond. Everything in marriage is shared. Ultimately, the husband and wife share life together in Christ. Christian marriage is the Edenic state recovered where we are naked but not ashamed in the presence of God and one another. Marriage is a God-brought, God-filled union between a man and a woman for his glory and the couple's good. This is why all of our culture's attacks on marriage are so dangerous. They not only threaten the gospel symbolism God built into marriage, they also threaten the most fundamental fabric of human society. Marriage is foundational to any human society because it is the most basic, bedrock form of companionship there is. When the bonds of marriage trust begin to fray on a wide scale, society as a whole begins to unravel. The problem with premarital sex illustrates this. Premarital relations destroy our ability to have marital relations in a trusting way. Premarital relations create a kind of false oneness a counterfeit of the oneness God intended. But this pseudo-oneness undercuts the genuine oneness of a biblical marriage, and thus of all true companionship. Why does the Bible teach that sex outside of marriage is wrong? God does not ban premarital relations because he is a killjoy, but because he wants a greater joy for us, the joy of true oneness and holistic companionship. C.S. Lewis explains one reason why premarital sex is abominable. Quote, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. End quote. What would you think about a man who opened up joint checking accounts with strange women he meets in bars? You'd say, he's crazy. You cannot have economic oneness with women you hardly know and to whom you have no commitment. That kind of shared oneness belongs only within a covenantal, marital relationship. But if that's the case, how much more does the one-flesh sexual union belong exclusively within the covenantal bond of marriage? 
The continual practice of partial oneness endangers and subverts the holistic oneness God desires for us. Sometimes the companionship element of marriage is misunderstood. Our culture tends to sensationalize it. We say things like, If I can just find my soulmate, I will live happily ever after. But once we get married, we discover the reality of living together as one flesh requires a lot of hard work. To be frank, men and women are quite different from one another. While we are designed to complete one another, in a fallen world, this does not always happen the way it should, because our masculinity and femininity are distorted by sin. The pieces of the marital puzzle do not always fit together as cleanly and perfectly as they should. Every marriage is going to have its quarrels. The key is to make sure they are lovers' quarrels. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Marriage is a duel to the death, which no man of honor should decline. In the 1930s, Chesterton observed that Americans had loosened their divorce laws, so that divorce for reasons of incompatibility were now legal. Chesterton quipped, If Americans can be divorced for incompatibility of temper, I cannot conceive why they are not all divorced. I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The companionship dimension of marriage is not always easy, but the whole aim of marriage is to fight through those instances when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. When our incompatibilities bump up against each other, what do we do? Chesterton again helps us out of the jams by reminding us who we are as men and women. Quote, the differences between a man and a woman are at best so obstinate and exasperating that they practically cannot be got over unless there is an atmosphere of exaggerated tenderness and mutual interest. To put the matter in one metaphor, the sexes are two stubborn pieces of iron. If they are to be welded together, it must be while they are red hot. Every woman has to find out that her husband is a selfish beast, because every man is a selfish beast by the standard of a woman. But let her find out the best way while they are both still in the story of beauty and the beast. Every man has to find out that his wife is cross, that is to say, sensitive to the point of madness, for every woman is mad by the masculine standard. But let him find out that she is mad while her madness is more worth considering than anyone else's sanity. End quote. Genesis 2 presents the complementarity of husband and wife in a beautiful way. When God brings Eve to Adam in Genesis 2, Adam breaks out into song, the first love poetry in the Bible. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Think about that imagery. Bone is hard, while flesh is soft. Adam is saying, Where I am weak, she will be strong, and where she is weak, I will be strong, and together we will complete one another and become one. I am you and you are me, and together we are one flesh. Admitting the struggles entailed in marital companionship opens the door to the third aspect of marriage, maturation and transformation. God uses the marriage relationship to bring about the transformation of our character. In Ephesians 5, 18-20, Paul describes the Spirit-filled life in musical terms. To be filled with the Spirit means singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. The spiritual person is a musical person. The Spirit adds a musical quality to our lives. 
just as song glorifies speech, so the presence of the Spirit elevates and beautifies everything in our lives. In verse 21, Paul begins unpacking various relationships in the church, but there is no sharp change in subject. It is not as if Paul says, enough about this business of being filled with the Spirit, now let's talk about family life. Paul is continuing to unfold what the spiritual life looks like when he begins talking marriage, family, and work. The presence of the Spirit not only makes us musical in a literal sense, but the Spirit brings harmony to our relationships in a metaphorical sense as well. Just as the Spirit leads us to harmonize our voices in worship, so He leads us to harmonize together in family and social life. The absence of the Spirit means strife and bickering. The presence of the Spirit makes our relationships joyful, playful, and beautiful, like a well-trained orchestra. What does this lived music look like in the home? The Spirit makes our lives glorious and radiant by empowering us to fulfill our particular roles with charity and humility. The Christian marriage is a Spirit-filled song and dance. As with all dances, the man leads and the woman follows. Together the lives blend into one as they make the music of the Spirit. How does the Spirit bring this about? Learning to dance well requires effort and discipline. It is interesting that historically the Church has treated celibacy as a kind of spiritual discipline. The chaste and faithful single life requires a special gift of the Spirit. But what is not widely recognized is that Christian marriage requires a special gift and work of the Spirit as well. Like the Christian celibate, the Christian spouse needs to see his or her calling as both a spiritual privilege and discipline. You must understand your marital life as an arena in which God will bring about the transformation of your character, exposing and remaking who you are. Let's consider some examples. Marriage gives us new opportunities to learn the fine art of forgiveness. When your spouse sins against you, God is giving you an opportunity to show mercy and learn to forgive as you have been forgiven. Your spouse's failures are actually great for your transformation. Every time your spouse sins, you have a golden opportunity to grow spiritually. Marriage also teaches us humility by exposing our own sin. Marriage does not simply change who we are. It reveals who we are. Marriage is like a full-length mirror for the heart. Marriage is a 24-7 relationship. It leaves you with no place to hide who you really are. Marriage exposes our selfishness, pride, impatience, and other assorted vices in a deeper way than any other human relationship. But of course, each time sin is exposed, we have a new opportunity to repent and, therefore, to grow and mature as believers. Marriage also teaches us wisdom. This happens in many ways, but consider, men and women are different. Biblically, they are viewed as equals in creation and redemption, but they are not identical. These differences are notoriously difficult to articulate, so allow me to oversimplify. Men and women have different roles to play in the created order. Men are more task-oriented, and women are more relationally oriented. Of course, men have relationships, too. And women also have tasks, but their respective orientations to the world are different. The creation account bears this out. In the order of creation, the man is formed first, 
he is given a job before he is given a wife. The woman is created second. She is created to be his helper so he can fulfill his assigned tasks. Our natural proclivities fit these different roles. Men tend to be more analytical and objective, women more intuitive and empathetic. Men are leaders and initiators, while women are completers and glorifiers. She will finish what he starts. He kills an animal, she cooks it. He builds a house, she decorates it. And so on. There can be no denying that men and women see the world and act in the world differently. But what happens when these differences lead to disagreements? How often do you hear about a husband and wife arguing over some aspect of how to raise their children? She sees the issue one way, he sees it another. Who's right? Who has the superior perspective? More often than not, both mom and dad are seeing important aspects of the situation. But both are also missing the whole. Only if they piece together their partial understandings will they arrive at a holistic view. Neither the masculine nor feminine view of the world is complete in itself. True wisdom is found when they are combined together in one. Children suffer a great deal when one spouse completely dominates the child-rearing paradigm in the home. A child's life is greatly enriched when his parents blend together their respective insights and perspectives. Husbands and wives must learn to appreciate their differences in perspective, insofar as these stem from God-designed differences between the sexes. In fact, the book of Proverbs depicts the pursuit of wisdom as a kind of courtship between a man and a woman for just this reason. The son on the pathway to wisdom not only embraces the right woman, lady wisdom rather than harlot folly, but in doing so, learns to value her way of seeing the world. This is why sons are commanded not only to obey their fathers, but to learn from their mothers as well, Proverbs 1, 8-9. At the end of Proverbs, we find the wise king reigning with his wise queen by his side as his trusted friend, confidant, and counselor, Proverbs 30 and 31. This is exactly what the Christian marriage should look like. As two Christian spouses get to know one another deeply, they each learn to see the world the way the other sees it. Proverbs depicts growth in wisdom as the product of interfacing with the opposite gender in love and respect. The best way to grow in wisdom is to listen to and learn from your spouse. Becoming wise means becoming a disciple of your spouse. But alas, this takes great effort and patience. If a man constantly interrupts his wife, or simply refuses to listen to her, he's going to be an even bigger fool in the future than he is today. He must humble himself and come to appreciate her way of seeing things. A lot of men scoff at their wives' perspectives and fears, but he must treat her as his lady wisdom, his own personal tutor in prudence. Men, God did not give you a feminine side, as you hear so often today. Instead, he has given you a wife. You need to get in touch with her if you want to be wise. But this is not just a problem for male chauvinists. Frankly, in a culture overrun with egalitarianism and feminism as our own is, all too many women dismiss the masculine perspective as brutish and silly. Women, this must not be. Your husband has something vital to teach you about the world. As a woman gets to know her husband, she grows in wisdom. 
She must learn to seek and respect his point of view more than she does her mother's or her girlfriend's. A mature Christian marriage is one where a husband and wife never stop getting to know each other and where there is mutual appreciation for the perspective of each other. This is true wisdom and true maturity. So we have seen how marriage helps us grow in forgiveness, humility, and wisdom. As a final example, consider how marriage teaches us about prayer. God uses marriage to stimulate us to prayer and teach us how prayer works. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3.7 God says to husbands, If you do not listen to your wife, if you do not take her cares and concerns seriously, I will not take your cares and concerns seriously either. If you are a married man, you need to understand that God has put this condition on your prayer life. You must live with your wife in understanding, listening to her and serving her. Only then can you be confident that God will hear you and serve you by answering your prayers. God puts a kind of positive pressure on the prayer lives of Christian husbands by giving this lex talionis principle. God tells men, how you treat your wife is how I will treat you. We might think that the man with a great prayer life is going to have a great marriage, and that is no doubt true, but 1 Peter 3 pushes us in the opposite direction. Having a great marriage is the key and impetus to a strong prayer life. If you want to have your prayers answered, be a good husband. To conclude, we have seen three purposes God has built into marriage, all of which are under attack in our culture. First, marriage is for the sake of gospel symbolism. As husbands and wives fulfill their assigned roles, they image Christ and the church to the world and thus preach the gospel. Second, marriage is for the sake of companionship. Husbands and wives befriend one another through thick and thin. And in this friendship, encourage one another to keep walking with Christ as they journey together towards resurrection glory. And finally, marriage is a means of transformation and maturation. As spouses grow in their love and appreciation for one another, they learn how to practice Christian basics like forgiveness, humility, and prayer but they also learn wisdom and thus become kings and queens over their God-given realms. The best defense of the biblical doctrine of marriage is the biblical practice of marriage. Marriage becomes its own best defense when we do marriage life God's way.